Hi, my name is John Freeman. I'm the editor of Granta Magazine, and I want to welcome you to this week's Granta podcast. Very happy to have with me Mohsen Hamid, the author of the three novels, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, Moss Smoke, and upcoming in March, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, a portion of which will appear in Granta's betrayal issue in January, entitled Don't Fall in Love. Uh, Mosin, it's great to have you here in the Grant's basement. Thanks, John. Good to be here. So uh, I was just saying this is probably a fitting end to uh, a strange beginning. Um, I heard about this book a long time ago. I wondered if you could talk about the genesis of it. Well, um, the first the first part of our our uh, conversation on this was was very important to shaping how the book turned out because uh, when I met you in New York, I think it was three years ago in the spring after the Penn World Voices Festival. We were both pretty tired uh, at a party and uh, quite exhausted and bleary from what I remember. Um, and we started talking about uh, reading novels, sometimes feeling like uh, like an exercise in self-help. And that triggered the idea that I would you know, write a self-help book, which I told you that night I would do. We both laughed. And I certainly didn't think I was going to wind up doing it. Uh, but uh, But I did because I couldn't shake this notion that, that novels um, are often offered to readers uh, as a form of self-help, that literary novels are, are read sometimes or, or at least marketed as if to say, if you read this, it'll be good for you. And that fed into a notion of, of you know what a literary novel really is. And I thought being playful about it and explicit about it would be interesting. And this book is actually structured like a self-help book. Each chapter begins with an instruction, go to school, don't fall in love. Um, it's not find a mentor, but a chapter about sort of finding someone to apprentice with. Um, tell me about the, the restrictions that you put on yourself and, and where they were ins- if they were inspired by self-help books that you come across in Pakistan. When I started writing the novel, I mean, usually what happens is I... Uh, I write a novel really badly the first time and then try it again the second time and it doesn't work until I figure out some form that will hold it so in the case of Mordsmoke it was the trial that eventually enabled the book to come to life and in the case of Threaten Fundamentalists it was this dramatic monologue where a uh, Pakistani man meets an American who's never allowed to speak on the page and has a has a conversation a dramatic monologue with him and both of those things allowed the novels to to unlock uh, themselves. In this case, I'd been writing a whole bunch of little pieces, um, snippets of voices of people from different slices of Pakistani society, rural, urban, poor, middle class, rich, um, in an effort to cut across uh, a range of people. Uh, my first two novels are very tightly fixed on, on one person and um, often a, one or uh, a smaller set of socioeconomic groups and I wanted a bigger canvas for this one but as I wrote those snapshots um, they didn't really work some of them individually were fine but I, I, as I started to paste them together and put them together uh, the novel was falling flat and, and then the self-help idea came in where I thought well what if I tell a self-help book about a character who um, starts off very poor in a village and, and slowly moves the city and works his way up the socioeconomic ladder, um, that would be a way to look at different slices uh, of Pakistan. Um, and in terms of the restrictions I'd put on myself, uh, because I had to keep coming back to the idea of this being a self-help book, um, 
I could both zoom in to look very closely at his life and also zoom out to, to talk about um, you know, the country, the continent as a whole, um, and cosmic issues, you know, like life and death and love. And are, are these self-help books that, uh, that, that the book refers, that references or lampoons or, or whatever, are these books very popular in, in Asia right now? Well, I think they are. Uh, when I walk into a bookshop in Lahore, uh, uh, my favorite bookshop is pretty close to my house, and that's a, it's an exception. But most bookshops in Lahore tend to have a lot of things that aren't fiction, um, and certainly that aren't literary fiction. So what you'll have is, um, for example, you'll have entire rows of, of stationery and um, pencil holders and desk organizing equipment. And then you'll have you know, greeting cards, magazines, um, uh, sometimes the latest best-selling novels, but, but the bulk of the bookshelf space will be um, teach yourself English, uh, personal branding, how to build a spreadsheet, those kind of things. The, the the less lesser known works of Philip Roth. <laughs> exactly. Yes, that's all of all the stuff he published under that, that pseudonym of his. Um, but yeah, that's exactly the kind of stuff you have, and uh, uh, it's. But people are reading. Um, one thing which I which I definitely am aware of in Pakistan is the growth of the English language and the growth of reading in the English language, not book length material necessarily, um, but tweets. Um, you know, shorter pieces online, uh, text messages, you know, Facebook. Um, lots and lots of people are, are communicating now in short form Romanized Urdu um, or uh, Urdu English uh, short form hybrids or, you know, or English uh, uh, with, with, you know, many uh, uh, Pakistani particularities. And so, um, uh, there's something very interesting happening with, with uh, reading uh, with reading and, and the English language in Pakistan, but reading generally. That, that form of reading, though, is oftentimes, um, and writing, is oftentimes uh, very utilitarian, stuff that you know is important and you know will help you. And the two big areas are um, personal improvement in its various forms and politics. Uh, that's what people seem to be devouring. Uh, perhaps more politics in Pakistan than many other places because uh, of the visceral impact Pakistan has on your life, uh, politics has on your life in Pakistan all the time. But um, but definitely self improvement, and then um, and even if you look at the comments people post, you know, on newspapers, uh, uh, comment sections or, or blog comment sections. It'll often be, um, you know, you should do this and we should do that and we would be better if we did this. Um, those kinds of comments and that, that sort of self-improvement in its, in its broadest sense is, is a big part of what reading and writing is about right now. Do, part of the reason for writing this book, I wonder, does it have to do with the growing narrative within uh, Asian media as well as media around the West about the improvement of the economy Within India and Pakistan, and the and the growing markets, and are you writing in some ways about how an exterior narrative can influence an interior narrative of a life? Yeah, I am writing about that. I think there is an exterior narrative um, that Asia is doing well. Uh, there are, of course, many exterior narratives that people experience, which are the opposite. Many people in Asia find that life is getting harder, 
um, and and uh, and it's intended as something at least partially ironic. This idea of, of rising Asia, but it's also partially true. There is this great rebalancing taking place where if you're born in uh, Italy or or uh, the United States or Britain, and um, you have a level of education similar to what somebody in in Pakistan or India might have, um, and you've been earning a hundred times what that person would earn uh, for doing similar types of work, there there appears to be uh, uh, something where those two things are converging. So a gardener in Pakistan, you know, maybe sees their wages go up um, uh, a little bit. Uh, a a typist in Pakistan or a data entry person sees them go up a lot. And uh, the data entry person here in London uh, sees it go down, and so so this kind of you know convergence where similar work is getting similar pay is really shocking um, uh, uh, in wealthy countries, and also somewhat shocking in poorer countries because it means a lot of people are making more money than they did before. But uh, against that backdrop and this this unfettered market, other things are also falling away, and I think uh, uh, issues like Spiritual crises and um, and the role of religion and uh, uh, and even politics in this new completely unfettered market are being twisted in unprecedented ways. And when you combine that with migration, internal migrations to cities where billions of people are leaving where they grew up and going someplace else, you have societies that are really being transformed. And in that environment, for people to look to you know self-help actors or to anybody really to tell them how to get ahead uh, is very natural. We've been talking about the context of the book um, and, and sort of the, 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 the crust of the book, if you will, because each chapter begins in a self-help voice and then gradually, in a, in a really miraculous kind of um, loop-de-loop, becomes a second-person voice about this character who you fall, follow uh, from a rural village uh, into the city, into jobs, up uh, economic ladders into marriage and through his life, and um, it's it's what I find so impressive is that um, you start with something very uh, philosophical, um, sometimes ironically philosophical, uh, sometimes sociological, and then get down to something very specific quite quickly. And I wonder um, how did you manage to pull that off? Because you do feel this character's life intensely. And, and it, feel, it works exactly like a novel, and yet it tells you it's not a novel, but it is a novel. It, it is a novel, and it, it, it protests that it isn't a novel. Um, but uh, I think it partly works because uh, there's some truth to the idea that novels are self-help books. Um, it's not an entirely sort of facetious uh, uh, proposition that, that they are self-help books you know, for readers... Uh, because they allow readers to transcend their own reality and experience something else, and um, uh, uh, whether they, the novel educates someone is is you know depends on the novel and depends on your reading of what novels do, but certainly um, they offer people help in the sense of connection with another consciousness or um, different ways of seeing things or release from where they are, uh, but but perhaps equally importantly, if not more importantly. Novels are self-help books for writers. Um, you know, I write novels to help myself, and uh, and and I'm in desperate need of help, which is probably why I spend all this time in this very strange activity, which is sitting at a computer making up fantasy worlds, 
And now you're sitting in a basement. And now I'm sitting <laughs> in a basement. You know, it just takes you from one place to the next. And so, uh, it. Uh, uh, I think the idea of self-help is 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 there. So, uh, in the novel, for it to be a self-help book and a novel and a novel at the same time was not maybe as much of a stretch as I thought it might be. And it was strange enough, felt honest that uh, uh, initially it started off as being playful, but quite quickly I felt a real uh, strong attachment to what was going on, that that maybe this is the first time as a writer I had ever been as explicit with myself and with you know the reader uh, as to what I'm actually trying to do. And that's quite liberating. Um, in a way, you don't have to do a lot of the games of fiction, which is uh, all the sort of uh, show don't tell stuff. You can just tell. Um, of course, you also have to show for it to be a functioning narrative. But but that ability to tell um, and the permission that you give yourself to tell uh, is is really liberating. I thought the interesting thing about um, the book's arc is that it it's a self help book, which is telling you how to get rich. Um, and getting rich is a process of accumulation and controlling capital and controlling other lives. But as the character gets older, um, his life is a series of losses, of subtractions, really. Um, he moves away from his home. He moves away from his sister. His, his parents die. I don't want to give away more. But um, those two narrative arcs are, are clashing. And um, did you do this on purpose? Are you saying something fundamental about... Um, the incompatibility of capitalism as a metaphor for living? Um. Well, um, uh, I'm exploring those ideas. And I think that uh, uh, we live in a world where it seems the dominant uh, philosophy is one of growth. That we can grow forever, uh, our economies can grow, our living standards can grow, our personal wealth can grow, our countries can grow. And that is the aspiration that seems to be quite widely adopted in most most places. Even the last, you know, holdouts in the hills of the Karakoram, or um, you know, restive jungles of the southern Philippines or uh, Indonesia. Um, you know, people who have been violently resisting whatever changes have coming uh, have been coming are, are also increasingly marketized now. There are very few real holdouts, and so. Um, I think it's interesting in a in a a, a you know human civilization that's obsessed with growth, um, as you said. What about loss? Uh, you know, we we are we are designed to lose um, over time. You know, our our looks, our health, our uh, minds, our lives, uh, our loved ones, uh, our dreams. So. So that uh, um, the the question of loss is something that I think is quite fundamental right now, and it's something the market doesn't answer very well. It is a question that traditionally uh, religion tried to answer, but at least in Pakistan and I think uh, almost everywhere in the world that I've been to, religion now feels that it is. Um, either being politicized, and so religion basically is becoming politics with religious uh, vocabulary, um, or mar marketized, so it is becoming a business. Um, and when it becomes politics, 
um, it does what politics is concerned with, which is uh, which is not necessarily uh, uh, equipping people to deal with loss. And when it becomes marketized, it buys into the whole growth story. And so, again, it doesn't do that. And I think that then leaves this space. Um, there is a kind of you know secular spiritual crisis in the world, uh, quite profound. And uh, 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 and you know my awareness of it is is I feel it in my own life. You know I I feel that um, I don't have good guides to help me deal with a sense of of real wor worry and sometimes depression and um, you know just anxiety uh, with uh, how the world around me is shaping up, how my life is shaping up, and so in an effort to begin to answer some of those questions for myself, um, I wanted to uh, uh, to offer up the dominant story of growth uh, uh, in the form of this self-help book um, and couple it with a human story, which is inevitably a story of loss, and to see, you know, what can result from that. Um, can you find a way to combine these two things, uh, which is more important, uh, and, uh, and if you have to have both, um, you know what are the what are the possible lessons uh, uh, for me personally as a human being and, and maybe for others as well. It, uh, one of the other um, narratives that that of growth is rubbing up against in this book is um, is the in, incapability of marketizing everything, such as relationships. Um, the, the character has an, an ongoing relationship with a, a, a girl he meets in his village. Um, which makes up the chapter uh, that, that's going to appear in Granta, and you follow her over the course of the book, and she basically, you know, gets out of the village by going into a, you know, what is basically a paid relationship, and then moves on in her life, and it's one of a series of relationships that's that's controlled through um, money as power in this book, and and ultimately those relationships all break down. Um, it's it, and it, and the it, the character is quite alone. And I we were talking earlier about the way that a, a, a society in which everything is for sale inscribes um, uh, the, the ruthlessness of the market onto um, human behavior. And I, I wondered if, when you set out to write this book, if you realized that the, it would it would make the character so alone. Well, I, I didn't know um, what would happen. I mean, I had the basic arc of his life, but not how, what it would feel like um, and how he would feel. And and that was sort of the journey for me um, in writing this book. But uh, I think it it has to do with uh, this notion of love. So at least in in a in a mystical Sufi tradition, for example, uh, this notion of love is paramount. That somehow we can we can uh, transcend this crisis of, of pe being you know, a life form that will encounter loss through love. And, uh, and we you know, throw around this notion of love, and you know, love has sort of lost all power, it seems, as a political or, 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 uh, or spiritual force because the word is devalued. We don't even know what it means. Um, and in writing the book, as I thought of it as a love story, uh, uh, and I, I thought, you know, what, what is a meaningful love? Uh, and it seemed to me that a meaningful love is, uh, uh, which is not to say that, you know, um, I'm trying to say that some loves are good and some loves are bad, but, but 
but I think that there's one type of love or one way of thinking about love which is to say I want something so I love you means I want you I want to possess you I want to have you you know I love my country um, uh, I love you know whatever it is it, it there's a there's a very possessive form um, uh, I want to subsume you at the end of the day is what it uh, comes down it's it's a it's a kind of acquisitive uh, love but there's another you know notion of that word and uh, and maybe I'm thinking this way partly because I've you know recently become a father myself and so I'm thinking about forms of love I haven't experienced before which is you know parental love but I think it applies to all types of love is there's also a a form of love which is to say that you know um, I want good for someone else um, and I think in you know we can think about love either as you know I want love because I don't want to be alone uh, which is which is a a marketized notion of love it's a product mm-hmm. that that serves a need of mine and then there's a form of love which is um, you know love means I don't want you to be alone and that kind of love of course is a transcendent love because it means transcending yourself um, and you know most of us encounter that in different forms and different moments uh, in our lives uh, uh, and I think I think that's what Sufi poetry was 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 getting at um, uh, that aspect of love not not the um, uh, it can protect me from uh, aloneness um, but in that it can remove me in a way uh, from aloneness or remove remove me from centrality in my consideration of what the universe is and put something someone else something else in that central position and thereby make everything else more tolerable um, you know I see this for example in in the way that my my children um, uh, and my grandparents interact uh, for my grand for I'm sorry my parents my children's grandparents for my children's grandparents um, watching my children uh, get older has changed time in a way because time is no longer just a process by which their own physical capabilities diminish it's a process by which these children you know um, increase their physical capabilities and it's an amazing thing to see and it's something that in a Pakistani extended family I think um, I, I get to see so so uh, so all of this comes back to this idea of of what's going on. I think in the in the novel, um, the arrival at a at a point where that kind of a love um, can exist or be acknowledged uh, is is part of this this character's journey, and um, and because it's a kind of love that can coexist with loss as opposed to simply resist loss or pretend loss isn't there. Um, it feels to me like a non-market love, like a different notion. Mm. I, I just it occurred to me while you were speaking that all of your novels are love stories. Yeah, that's right. They are all love stories. They weren't. They aren't meant to be. Um, I think I. Uh, yes, I'm sort of. I'm sort of stuck on the love story. I think that's that's basically what I've been writing uh, for my first uh, uh, three books, and. Uh, I don't know. It strikes me as uh, uh, personally the most interesting story, um, but of course, a love story can be anything else. It can be a story about dying. It can be a story about politics. It can be a story about 
um, whatever. But it feels it feels like it has to be it has to be part of it. Uh, it it may be just my own personal temperament. It may be that um, literature from the part of the world where I happen to live has always been love stories. You know, that Sufi poetry is 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 and is love stories and ghazals are love stories and um, uh, the idea that that's the big story maybe has always been there for me uh, it's just around Is this the first book that you've written fully while living in Pakistan? Yeah, I think it is um, Mott Smoke I wrote about Pakistan but mostly living in the States and Dr. Fundamentalist I wrote uh, mostly about New York uh, but living mainly in London and Pakistan some in Pakistan but this one is uh, yeah, the only one where probably uh, every sentence in the book was actually written while in Pakistan. Do you think that changed the type of book you wrote? or? I think it did in a way because uh, in Pakistan uh, one thing I was very aware of was the self-consciousness um, about Pakistan that exists inside Pakistan. People in Pakistan that I speak to and that I meet often talk about how Pakistan is perceived and one should act a certain way or, or the country should act a certain way or individuals should act a certain way or write certain types of books or say certain kind of things because of the implication on how Pakistan is perceived. And I think um, this notion that Pakistan is, is so intensely viewed uh, and so constantly viewed uh, and distorted by the viewing uh, it's something I hadn't questioned so much before in my first two novels. Uh, Motsmo, because at that time Pakistan didn't feel so intensely viewed. Um, and then Fundamentalist, because in a sense my gaze was more on America than Pakistan in that book. But now I, I was aware of it, and so the question for me became, how do I write honestly about this place, uh, you know, honestly to myself, and, and how do I look at it fresh? And so I think uh, uh, the strategy I took to do that was to say I'm never going to use the word Pakistan or really any other yeah it's not set discernibly yeah. anywhere I mean it's it sounds like India or Pakistan but it could be many other places it could be with a, f I mean, a few details change it could be you know probably any uh, uh, relatively poor country that's starting to become wealthier um, and but then once once I took Pakistan out very quickly it started to become uh, and I had the notion of the you as the as the reader of a self-help book and main character um, soon I, I started to feel that I didn't want there to be any names in it and so I would keep the continents in uh, Asia, North America, etc. but beyond that there'd be no names so there's no Islam, no Christianity um, you know, no brands uh, no characters have names and uh, and for me that was as a writer very useful because it it, it wasn't just de-exoticizing Pakistan, which is an important part of it, um, uh, an important part of the project for me, because when you write something without names, oftentimes, you know, uh, uh, and you try to create effects that otherwise would so easily come with certain choices of word, uh, uh, you, re you see what you're doing, you think, what the hell am I doing with this for? Um, so it's nice just to say place of worship or, um, you know, street, as opposed to, you know, uh, or, or big gun as opposed to the king's, you know, Kim's gun, the zamzama outside the Ajayib Ghar, that kind of stuff. So it was helpful for me to, to see Pakistan uh, differently. 
but also it it was helpful because um, uh, it allowed me to uh, look for the universal and the specific. I think that um, you know when when I uh, uh, read from different parts of the world, um, sometimes I get the feeling, for example, in American literature, that there is an implicit sense that this is universal because it's about America, and America is very important, so therefore it's universal. And I have most of my life read that way. You know, there are probably American writers who, had they been Polish or whatever, I would never bother to read, but they were important American writers, and America is important. So there's that way of, of sort of going at universality. Um, and then, the, you know, there are many other ways, but, uh, but I, was, I was curious about uh, coming at universal themes and universal points of view in a very, very specific context, um, but making the specific context feel that way. And I thought, if you take the names out, it starts to feel that way. This can be anybody, and that can be anybody's mother or brother or sister. Um, and you start uh, connecting humanly again, as opposed to intermediated by this idea of, oh, well, this is happening in Japan, and so it's kind of a cool Japanese situation. Um, it's not. It's just a father and a mother and a son. Uh, and and also on that, I think part of, partly back to the self-help book, this idea of personal branding has now become very important. So I need to be on Twitter and Facebook and uh, saying stuff that's, you know, communicating the Mohsen Hamid brand. Exactly. So, you know, <laughs> Developing your readership. Developing my readership and, and sort of... <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And... And... Um, uh, uh, and um, uh, and that's as a writer, but everybody's being told to do this, you know, in different fa ways. It, because as every relationship becomes marketized, then marketing yourself becomes important, and branding becomes important, and branding works through naming. So having a name that is, you know, John Freeman, Mohsen Hamid, Granta, um, whatever, uh, is the way to do that. So, so once you strip that away, uh, and you and you see the world without branding. Um, in a sense, it is uh, you don't you don't demarketize a world by removing branding, but you can reveal how things work uh, in interesting ways because because uh, things feel slightly different when the brands have been all removed. This is ironic because you used to work for a branding agency in London. Did did working there perversely inform in any way what you realized fiction can do? That that branding cannot. That uh, yeah. Well, I think uh, you know everything informs you. So um, uh, definitely, working in branding uh, uh, was was very important, interesting for me. Didn't you work on the brand of New York City? Um, my the company I worked for did work on that. I didn't work on that particular uh, project, but yes, you've I mean, done I, an excellent job. Uh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, the city's <laughs> doing quite well. Um, it's a big breakthrough. Uh, for us, no, I, you know, it's uh, um, branding. Uh, I think boils down to corporate branding when you're doing it in the private sector as a profession. It comes down to doing it well. Comes down to saying, okay, what things are true about the thing we're branding? Um, what stuff do people want? What's what is there a market for? And then. In the overlap between those two things, we should create a brand. So, so I think just lying, you know, Mohsen Hamad is a great pole vaulter, and sort of putting up a bunch of pictures about that, it wouldn't really build my pole vaulting brand. 
but tweeting about literature when I'm a writer, which I do, uh, is an act in personal writer branding, um, and something which you know I think many writers, myself included, feel very ambivalent about because we're not sure how honest or sincere it can be and if it isn't then why are we doing it and if we're doing it if it isn't sincere then what does it mean that we actually really are but uh, 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 but of course boiling things down to one of their essences and then uh, matching that essence with a need I think is, is how branding works um, as a writer of fiction what's interesting is to say uh, well let's boil things down to their essence but not match it to a need um, and then what's left so it is still maybe a kind of branding um, uh, view of the world and looking for an essence and branding is also about looking for an essence but uh, and I and branding is quite close to the heart of the modern economy and the modern um, culture because branding is looking for essences uh, with an eye on growth. Um, it's not saying, what is this thing? It's saying, what among the things this could plausibly be um, will let us grow? And, and so, so branding is, is, a, is a, I guess you could say, a kind of um, marketized uh, version of, um, you know, certain types of, of philosophy or art or observation. Mm. Um, the, speaking of uh, the brand of you, um, it's about to expand again because um, uh, the, the film of the Reluctant Fundamentalist is, is coming out in January, right around the time this, this excerpt will be published. Have you seen the film yet? I have seen the film. I was at the Venice Film Festival um, where the, where the uh, film premiered and uh, uh, I have to say that the movie business is a little different from the book business. I've never been, I've never been to a book launch where there's 2,000 photographers, you know, all screaming Kate, um, because Kate Hudson is in the film. I thought that was your new brand. I know. I, I would love to own that brand. And I was responding to that uh, for a few days afterwards. You could call me Kate. and I was used to just turning and posing. Um, but, uh, uh, no, I think the, the film is now um, ready and uh, done. Uh, it'll be released, I think, in different countries first half of next year. But it's been a very interesting experience as a writer to watch a film get made because uh, it's taught me how different the two art forms are, film and, uh, and, and, and books. Well, when you were talking about how brand is sort of pulling the essence of something out of it and then trying to find an audience for that or a need that that essence provides and an audience who wants it... Um, it Films, when they're adapting books, feel like they pull an essence out of it, but a visual essence. Did did the the film that you have, that you saw that when it premiered did it did it look like your book? Does you imagined your book? You know, I guess I hadn't really imagined what my book would look like that much. Uh, and this is the funny thing, you know, when I saw Lord of the Rings, the movie, it looked a lot like what I imagined the book looked like when I read the book, the books, but. Um, uh, and and I and I do think that that's uh, for me uh, one of the differences between novels and 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 movies uh, is that um, a novel is designed for the reader to imagine what it looks like. You have this in this new book too. There's a, there's a lot of sort of almost self help 
um, mimicry that turns into literary theory. Yeah, I mean it's probably it's probably pretty basic literary theory because I don't really read much literary theory, so I'm sure this is I'm reinventing it. Actually, not readable most. <laughs> yeah, so I guess I guess it's one of these things where um, you know uh, I, I'm wearing my ignorance on my sleeve, but uh, but it's also influenced by the fact that I was moving working on this movie during the writing of this book, and was thinking about you know how books work, uh, and and increasingly I got the view that. Uh, uh, in in a, in a movie, you have a screenwriter, uh, you have a director, you have actors, cinematographers. All of these people make this vision. In a book, you have a, a a writer who is a bit like all of those things, but only part of all of those things. So you get this partially um, uh, directed, partially filmed, partially acted work. Uh, and then you make it. The reader makes it. So I think that is one of the that is one of the um, uh, differences between the two, and and also influenced the book and has been influencing me for a while because I tend to think that's what the strength of novels is, and one of the strengths. That's something that they can do that nothing else uh, uh, can do quite as well, which is, you know, novels are an invitation for grown-up people to imagine stuff for extended periods of time. And in our culture, where we are, um, you know, not called upon uh, necessarily to imagine outside of a marketing context. I mean, you, know, you can have a, you can have a session where you're like, okay, we need a new name for this magazine. Let's have our best ideas, which is which is different. But this is, you know, more like play. You're imagining for yourself because you enjoy it. And uh, uh, and novels are quite special in that they offer an invitation. They're like theme parks for adults to go imagine in. Um, and uh, and so many of the writers that I've most admired uh, and and continue to you know look to for inspiration are writers that you know were able to set up uh, situations in which my imagination went nuts and uh, and I think uh, as I was writing the book that was part of what I was exploring which is that that's what books do well. So um, the the book comes out in March. It's called How to, um, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. Do, do you have any kind of secret wish that um, tens of thousands of unsuspecting businessmen will pick this up um, and find themselves doing that exact kind of imagination? Um, is, it, is this a sort of subversion of, of, uh, of reading practices? Uh, you know, it'd be funny to see. Um, I think uh, uh, you know, I would love to get you know Best Business, business Book of the Year Award, <laughs> you know, the Goldman Sachs Best Business Book of the Year Award. I don't think it's going to happen, but um, I, you know, that would be very funny to be read in that way. Um, you know, to to be read uh, as a book that actually is a guide, uh, or or you know can be uh, a guide to either Asia or uh, individual richness or understanding you know these things. Well, this this is very clever because um, self help books are, are riddled with uh, or um, buoyed by however you want to say. Um, anecdotes, personal anecdotes by the writer. The seven, the seven habits of highly successful people is full of these, actually quite bizarre uh, personal <laughs> sides. And and the Tony Robbins series, you listen to those tapes, and he's you know he's telling you exactly how he was overweight and living in an apartment, mm. and, and there's a narrative to them. Um, but there, there's there's such a big, I think narrative is a mistake. It's actually there's a difference between anecdotes and narrative, and I and I feel like what you're doing in this book is is showing um, how different is the thinking when you 
plunge someone into narrative rather than anecdote. Well, I think, yeah, there is a difference between narrative and anecdote, um, although done really well in an impressionistic kind of a way, you can string uh, anecdotes together to make a narrative. But um, uh, that sounds like a dinner party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A dinner party, or 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 um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, writers writers do sometimes create these these fractured um, uh, narratives that that do work. But uh, what what a you know non anecdotal narrative allows uh, or has an advantage in doing is it builds. And so the degree of emotional investment and the degree of impact it can have, if it's done well, um, you know, grows. You know, when when Charlotte dies towards the end of Charlotte's Web, you just ruined it for you know. Oh, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Grant, our readers. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> you know, it it kills you. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, as a child, you know, uh, it's still the, the the best novel about death I've ever read, and um, uh, uh, and I think uh, you know about the inevitability of it and about the naturalness of it and the sadness without fear of it. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it it can have that impact, and I think uh, uh, the anecdotal approach is here are a series of amusing points. Um, but uh, but point twenty six when you add up points one to twenty five maybe doesn't hit that much harder for being point twenty six, whereas in a narrative what happens is when you get to the end, um, that that uh, relationship that has been formed in the course of the narrative is meaningful, and uh, uh, it is a it's a fictional relationship, um, but it's a very it's poss possibly a very powerful fictional relationship and so. I think you know uh, it's something that um, uh, uh, you're right that that uh, when we you know when you read a self-help book that's full of anecdotes and you finish it, um, you probably still feel completely alone. Um, but when you read a novel, you maybe feel slightly less so, and uh, uh, and that's one of the things that the narratives can do. Well, it's a brilliant warm and, and rather disturbing book um, I, you know that works through accretion looking at how to get rich while telling a story that's full of loss which in its culmination is also a story uh, about the rising stakes of of, of life uh, it's, it's a beautiful book I hope you get a chance to read it it's called How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia it comes out in March with Hamish Hamilton in the UK uh, Riverhead in the U.S. Who does it in Penguin India? Penguin India, does in, in, in India and in Pakistan. And India and Pakistan, um, and I'm sure many other countries later in the year. Mosin, it's great to talk to you. Thanks, John.